0: Great to be here. I am. I'm a big fan of Reliance Church, and I'm really glad to uh, be able to be here um, this morning. Uh, we just, myself and my family, um, we just arrived uh, to um, America um, last night. So we had a big, long uh, day of travel yesterday, and um, waking up this morning, it's like. <gasps> It's Reliance Day. I think it's like New Year's Day or something too, but it's Reliance Day. This is what's been on my calendar uh, for the upcoming uh, days and weeks leading up to this day. So I'm really glad to be here. Um, I am someone who has been um, cared for and helped um, by Reliance um, over 2016. Um, So I just wanted to say uh, thank you so much. Um, I and my family... I think there's a picture um, up there of my family. Nope. Here's a small version of it. Um, and um, so, yeah, we, uh, we love um, Ireland. We love the people of Ireland. We know that there is a great uh, need for uh, the gospel of Jesus Christ and his grace and his unmerited favor um, to go uh, to that country and, and To that end, Um, I moved there uh, 13 years ago. Uh, My fiancée slash wife, um, we we got married and she joined me um, about 12 years ago. And so we've been there and we've been, yeah, just laboring and working to see uh, just a local church um, established. And so um, I think uh, the average evangelical church in Ireland is about 30 people. Um, so we're slightly um, more robust evangelically um, than, um, than Italy. Uh, but yeah, things are going really good. It's been a good... Oh, no, I'm just... The national average um, has been about, yeah, 30. Do you know in the States? I think it's like 110, just so you know. So you guys are doing well, too. Um, so yeah, it's been a, a good year uh, for for us. Uh, we recently added a second service um, There's just a a lot of our long-term prayers um, were seen answered recently, Um, and so we're thankful to God um, for that. Um, We had an opportunity at Calvary Cork to host um, the first ever um, National Calvary Leadership Conference. Um, and so uh, pastors and leaders and kids ministry directors and workers from the six um, Calvaries in Ireland and Northern Ireland, they all converged together at Cork, and um, a, a team from Reliance really just um, upheld and um, instructed and helped um, so many uh, people that are in turn instructing and helping so many people. So again, thank you for that. And also um, Ted and Brenda were joined by like this um, kids ministry SWAT team or um, like the Avengers or something. This collection of like, um, yeah, children's ministry superheroes um, that each have their unique strengths and no weaknesses. And um, yeah, so we're still, we're still talking about that. So again, thank you guys um, so very much. Um, and yeah, I've been given uh, this day, the first day of 2017. And um, what I want to do is just point our attention towards Jesus, uh, because uh, wouldn't it be great to have, to maintain that focus throughout the year? So we're going to start the year as we aim to continue, um, just by considering Jesus, um, by, by looking to his glory, and we know that, that it's going to transform us as we behold um, his glory. It's a big task, right? But so for that reason, I'm going to pray and ask uh, God the Holy Spirit to help us to make much of God the Son. Lord, we are so in need um, in, in every ways. We might be materially well-off or materially str- um, struggling, but Father, we do know that our greatest and our ultimate need is um, a touch uh, from, from Jesus. We need to be touched by him and we need to have our hearts and our minds and our eyes opened to see more of who he is and who he tre- um, and all that he means. So would you do that thing, Lord? I pray that, that we would do what we can do, Lord, that we would do the hard work of paying attention and reading along and thinking, Lord, and, and preaching and, and um, teaching. And Lord, that you would do what only you could do, which is, Lord, um, just cause Christ to be beautiful to us Um, in the midst of that. Would you change us on the spot, Lord, to to worshipers who have eyes that are open to behold you for who you are. We pray this in your name. Amen. So we're going to be looking at um, the transfiguration, uh, which you can read about in Mark chapter 9, but before you go to Mark chapter 9, why don't you go to Mark chapter 8? Uh, because uh, the author, uh, Mark himself, has included certain things. Again, Mark is a, um, a short book. Uh, Mark is incredibly selective about what he tells us about the story and the life and the ministry of Jesus. And uh, he also is intentionable. Intention- <sighs> I'm jet lagged, so... Um <laughs> He is intentional. Um, Of all the words to mispronounce, you know, like the one that means that you think about what you say is the one that I could not say myself. So he is intentionable. Can we get a do-over? He tells certain stories on purpose. And in Mark chapter 8, he gives two vignettes or two pictures that I think um, really prepare the way for Mark chapter 9 where Jesus is seen uh, as, as fully glorious. And so the first one that we'll see is in Mark chapter 8 uh, verse 22 down to verse 26. It's one of those unusual uh, passages that you're like, what? Did I just read that right? Um, let me read yeah most of that. So, Starting halfway through verse 22, some people brought to him a blind man and begged him to touch him. And he took the blind man by the hand and led him out of the village. And when he had spit on his eyes and laid his hands on them, he asked him, do you see anything? And he looked up and said, I see men, but they're like trees walking. Then Jesus laid his hands on his eyes again and he opened his eyes And his sight was restored, and he saw everything clearly. I would propose that the most surprising part of that paragraph, that story, is not the part when Jesus spits in some guy's face. I think the most surprising part of that is that the miracle happens in stages. Um, that this, of as far as I know, of all the miracles that we have recorded to Jesus, this is the only one that was not instantaneous, but that there seemed to be a process of of greater clarity and power that comes. Um, so it's an interesting thought as we consider that. And so why? why? Why is that? Was it that Jesus needed to muster up more faith? Um, that he needed to flex his muscles and have some more power um, for the second time? I think a, a robust Christology or a proper understanding of who Jesus is would cause us to dismiss that. No, of course he doesn't need to work out more face. No, of course, of course he doesn't need to, to to flex his muscles and and gain some more power. Um, I think that Jesus, everything that Jesus does is intentional. Uh, he did this in stages, on purpose, and Mark records it on purpose. I think that this is showing us a, a small picture of what's going to be happening uh, over the course of chapter eight and chapter 9 giving sight and then later giving clearer sight and greater clarity on a side note i also just love verse 23 this is just a total bonus don't you just love the tenderness he took the blind man by the hand and led him out of the village i just i just love it that's just a thought happy new year There's a whole other sermon there, but I, but I love that. I do, I do just love, I, I noticed that this morning as I was reviewing it and just thinking, Jesus is great, isn't he? So he takes them by the hand and he leads them away to, to bless him. But anyway, so that's, that's the first thing, that there is um, a, a miracle but a miracle that takes place in stages. There's sight that's given, but the clarity doesn't come until later on, okay? So with that in our mind, that's the first event. And then the second event takes place, you know, right afterwards. uh, Mark uh, links these two things together because in Mark chapter 8, afterwards they go to Caesarea Philippi, verse 27, and then he asks, you know, who do people say that I am? And the answer is given, you know, well... Jesus, there's so many varying options out there. Some people say that you're this or that you're that. And then Jesus asks that important follow-up question and says, but, but who do you say that I am? And Matthew's gospel gives us the expanded answer where um, he said, Peter says, you know, where you are the Christ, you are the son of the living God, And Jesus answers, you know, blessed are you, uh, Simon, son of Jonah, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. So in essence, when the question is, oh, who's Jesus? A lot of people think, well, I see him this way or I see him as that. But when the question comes of who do you say that I am? Uh, Peter says, well, you're the son of God. You know, you are the promised one. Uh, you're the one that all the prophets have been foretelling and writing. And, and Jesus says, bingo. And, and then he goes on to say, but you know what, Peter? You didn't come up with that. It's a miracle that you know that. Because the Father has revealed that to you. The Father has allowed you to see. So the, theologically, that's called the doctrine of illumination. When God opens our eyes for the work of the Holy Spirit, is opening our eyes to see Jesus for who he is. And and Jesus points it out when he sees it. God's at work right now because you see. You know who I am. God let you see. And then, after people kind of can see that he is the the culmination of all the promises of the Old Testament, then he says, and you know what? I'm going to Jerusalem. And there I'm going to be betrayed into the hands of sinners. Then I'll be handed over and I'll, I'll die. And three days later, I will rise again. You see, that's the following that takes place in verse 31 and following. Uh, Peter, who had been given divine sight, shows that his vision is not that clear because he tells Jesus, nope. He pulls him aside and he rebukes Jesus and says, no, 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 That's that's not how I see it. You're not going to go to Jerusalem and, and suffer. That's not how I read the Old Testament. Uh, you're going to come in power and glory. Um, you're not going to go suffer, be betrayed, and die in Jerusalem. So, I mean, it seems like Peter sees, but maybe he sees like trees walking uh, at the moment. His, his sight needs to be clearer. So, what takes place over the next few verses, maybe it's kind of a reenactment of that verse that I pointed out at the beginning. Jesus takes him by the hand, brings him outside of the village, and then allows him to see clearer. He doesn't just bring Peter, of course. He brings James and John, who always tend to tag along. Um, and so, but they go, I guess, from the crowd, from even the, the larger group, the cadre of um, disciples, and it's just Jesus and the three others, and they go on a hike. So it doesn't take place immediately, though. It takes place six days later. Uh, Mark, in, in verse 2 of chapter 9, Mark doesn't usually give us time stamps. Um, he tends to use words like immediately or suddenly or then. Um, and so it, it is perhaps unusual that he gives us a, a timestamp stamp at all. Um, Probably because he wants to say, okay, listen, time passed, but these are connected. They are joined together. Um, And more than that, perhaps this is a reference to a chapter in the book of Exodus, in chapter 24, where we don't have time to go into all the details, but if you want to jot down Exodus 24, uh, verse 15. Uh, Because in it, we see that God speaks to Moses and says, I'm going to show you my glory. Go climb up a mountain and wait for six days, and then my glory is going to come and to appear before you. So maybe that reference of six days later is a flavor of that Old Testament scripture there. But so we have that six days later, and then we have the location. Uh, Mark tells us that it's just a high mountain, he doesn't give the name. He doesn't give the GPS coordinates. Um, we're not sure exactly what it is. Um, some people assume that it is uh, Mount Harmon because it is the tallest mountain um, in all of Israel. It's 9,000 square feet, which is like Palomar Mountain and a half. Um, so it's, it's pretty tall. Snowfall falls there. I usually don't think of Israel as like having snow, but, but that's, it's that tall. Um, 9,000 feet high. Uh, The traditional site uh, is Mount Tabor, um, which is 1,800 feet, which is about the size of um, the Santa Rosa Plateau, if you guys have ever been there. So um, we see that they go up, that he invites them to go hiking with him. Join me, he says, at the top of the mountain. There's something I want to show you up there. And In Luke's version of this, in Luke chapter 9, he gives us the additional information that once they get there, that the disciples um, are sleeping. Um, And so before we just kind of roll our eyes and say, oh, those disciples, always falling asleep. You know, they they possibly just hiked up, uh, you know, uh, Palomar Mountain and a half. Um, So maybe they're a bit tired. Maybe they're a bit tired. But it, it says that they're sleeping, and it also says that Jesus is praying, so the events that we're going to be reading, it, it begins with Jesus in prayer and the disciples in sleep. Kind of a, a glimpse of a future time when Jesus will be praying and the disciples will be sleeping. Uh, not at the hill, but in the garden of Gethsemane. Uh, but so we read in verse th- verse 2, halfway through verse 2, that as he's there, as he's praying, that it says that he was transfigured uh, before them. And his clothes became radiant, intensely white, as no one on earth could bleach them. So he is transfigured. Uh, That word has... um, We don't really use that word at all, unless we're talking about this event. You know, it's a very specific uh, kind of of word. And just to to maybe point out the obvious... uh, you know, transfiguration, the word trans means change. You know, like yesterday I took a transatlantic flight. I was on one side of the Atlantic and then I transferred over uh, to the other. So I changed. And figure means figure. <laughs> um, and so there was a change in the figure and the appearance. If you're interested, the, the Greek word for this is uh, metamorpho. Um, so, of course, we get the word metamorphosis um, from. And so he changed his figure his appearance uh, in front of the recently awoken um, disciples. Uh, perhaps it was some kind of a gradual process. Um, again, Matthew and Luke, they fill us in a bit more of the details. Um, perhaps it was gradual. In Matthew 17, it says that his face shone like the sun, and his clothes became white as light. So maybe there's this change in his face, you know, that, that radiates out to the rest of his appearance. And Luke says that his clothes became radiant, intensely white, as no one on earth could launder them, and the appearance of his face was altered. So Jesus there on top of that mountain is, is shown to be the most glorious thing in the world. So the same Jesus who hiked up that mountain with them, who sweat beside them, Uh, Now he's transfigured into this radiant, bright, visual expression of glory before them. So they're taking a nap, and he is quite literally glowing. And that's far from how he usually looks, right? I mean, last Sunday was uh, the 25th of December, and we commemorate and celebrate the, the events of the Incarnation, that he came as one of us to all of us. And certainly there's exciting events that took place in the heavens around when when Christ was born, but he would have looked like an ordinary baby in in a sense because as fully human and fully divine, he lived his life as a full human. Um, He looked like an ordinary baby. He lived as an ordinary man. Apart from what the paintings or the icons would show, he did not have a halo that followed him around everywhere that he went. Uh, The prophet Isaiah says that he had no form or majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. So Jesus looked ordinary, strikingly ordinary, if that's not too much of a contradiction uh, to say, that he looked like everybody else. So much so that in the Garden of Gethsemane, when Judas came with the um, soldiers to arrest him, he had to arrange a signal so that he could point out which one of them was Jesus. Just a reminder that he looked ordinary. He didn't say, hey guys, get the one with the halo. Um, nor did he say, get the really, really ridiculously good-looking one. Um, he'd said, they all kind of look the same. Jesus looks kind of normal. I'll be sure to point out the one that you're supposed to uh, arrest. So, but for this moment, for these moments at top of this mountain, uh, he appears as the most majestic and the most glorious being in all the universe. There's this, this glimpse of eternity that shows through the veil of his humanity. I wonder if, if over the past month, if you heard or you sang the great Wesley hymn that says, um, "Veiled in flesh, the Godhead see; hail the incarnate deity, pleased as man with man to dwell, Jesus our Emmanuel." So God's glory is veiled in flesh, but up on that mountain, in front of those guys. The veil is kind of lifted just a bit, and, and the glory of God shines through. So this has been referred to as, as a miracle. You know, Thomas Aquinas, the medieval theologian, said that this is the greatest of all miracles because there on top of the mountain, God's will was done on earth as it is in heaven. Jesus was glorified and seen as wonderful on earth just as he always has been in heaven. We could call it a miracle, or maybe, to be technical, maybe we could say that it's not technically a miracle, but it's this temporary pausing of an ongoing miracle. And that ongoing miracle is that the infinite has become finite, that that God's glory has been covered, as it were, veiled in flesh. So I guess the real miracle is that most of the time, Christ could keep from displaying his glory at all ways, at all times. So Christmas is exciting for us because it's an annual reminder of that, that God the Son condescended. He came down and he entered into the human experience as one of us and for all of us. The author of Hebrews says that that the incarnation means that he can sympathize with us and with our weaknesses. But there he is, this human man, showing forth the glory of God. So there's a maybe a way to kind of explain this a little bit. And this is a, a story that's not perfect. Um, I know that Pastor Ted teaches um, homiletics at the Bible College, which is basically how to preach. And, uh, you know, using stories is always hard because you're never going to get it right, you know. Um, and this one especially is not that good. <laughs> um, but... So I I live in a very cold, wet place, and so I I love when I get to visit the States, and I love when I get to to go to the California beaches. And I'm going to go in January, and it's going to be like the warmest that I've been all year. Um, And, you know... You know, put on my, my swim trunks and take off my T-shirt and, you know, there I am. And, and, I, and I find I'm kind of actually doing it even now without thinking, but I kind of, like, tend to suck in my stomach um, just a little bit. Maybe, gentlemen, maybe you do the same. Um, it's, it's almost instinctual, you know, like, how can I present, like, the best version of, of myself before the watching world? Um, and, you know, go splash around, play with the kids, um, et cetera. And then the time comes when I get back into the car or, you know, put my T-shirt on, when I kind of, like kind of relax, and like I revert back to my actual or my natural state, okay? So that's a bad illustration of what took place at the Mount of Transfiguration. <laughs> it's kind of, it's, it's it's reversed, you know what I mean? Um, so Jesus, at that moment, in that time, for that small viewing audience, he goes back to his natural and his eternal state. And again, it's not that he has a belly. It's that he's always glorious. And, and these guys, they, they get to see it. Now remember, connecting it back to all that Mark 8's been showing us, you know, gradually being touched by Jesus and being able to see clearly. They had this, this clear view of who he really is because in John 17:5 Jesus he prays to the Father and he says glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed in, in eternity past, there was this. In, in Isaiah chapter 6, in that famous um, glimpse into the heavenly realities, it says that he saw the Lord high and lifted up, and the train of his robe you know, filled the temple, and there's angels, and they're shouting back and forth to each other, holy, holy, holy. Um, well, in John chapter 12, that is referenced, and it says that Isaiah, the prophet, he spoke concerning the glory of Jesus. So that, that is the eternal reality. And then again, at the transfiguration, if I might say it, like that glory kind of kind of leaked out, you know, or it was intentionally shown. And I love the song that we sang uh, at the beginning. You know, it had that, that line, "Oh, what a foretaste of glory divine." Uh, now, now that the transfiguration reminds us of the previous glory that he had, but it also is showing us the present and the always glory um, of the Lord Jesus. I mean. You guys are studying Revelation, right? Like, you get this, yeah? Um, But then more than that, also, Christian, it is a foretaste of of our glory. John, who was there. He writes in the epistle uh, that bears his name in 1 John. He says, Beloved, we're God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when we see him, we shall be like him because we shall see him for how he is. There's a whole other sermon and thought out there, of the doctrine of glorification, of what that means for the believer. Romans 8 talks about that there's a great future for the believer. So the appearance of Jesus changes. But it's not just that, is it, right? There's the appearance of two additional men up there. So if there was, if, as they climbed up to the top, you know, maybe they saw one of those signs that we see, you know, now entering you know, Temecula, population, whatever. Um, maybe as they went up there, there's a sign that, you know, now reaching the top of Mount Tabor, population four, you know, <laughs> Peter, James, John, and Jesus. Well, then all of a sudden, population six, because there's two new guys that just show up. Let, let's look at verse four to, to see that. And, and then there appeared to them Elijah with Moses, and they were talking with Jesus. So there's like two Old Testament characters, historical people, men. They just appear and they stand with Jesus and they're talking with him. And and I mean, I just I have questions, you know, like why why these two? Why why Moses? Why why Elijah? Why them and not other people? Why not Adam or Zechariah? You know, why, not, um, uh, why not Jonah and David? Why not Noah and Samuel? Why, why these two? Of all the potential people that could have shown up, why, why did God choose for these people to appear next to his glorified son? I think these two men, I think their, their lives had some interesting parallels with the life of Jesus uh, that maybe we're supposed to notice. Um, Both of them experienced persecution and suffering because of their obedience to God. Um, Both of these men were rejected by their contemporaries, but later they're publicly vindicated by God, um, shown to be God's appointed and anointed leader of his people. Uh, But maybe this is the most important Uh, Both of them have experienced God's glory as shown at the top of a mountain before. Uh, I referenced it earlier on. uh, We do know that Moses, back in Exodus 24, experienced the glory of God on the top of a mountain. Remember that? It was like 10 minutes ago. Um, but, But also in chapter 34, so 10 chapters later, this, the similar thing takes place again. The glory of God was, was displayed uh, on the top of a mountain. And, and Elijah, in, in 1 Kings 19, not in the way he was expecting, but surely the presence of God met Elijah on the top of Mount Carmel. And it's, it's great. And, and another, I guess, ancient answer to the question of, you know, why, why these two? an early church father by the name of Origen, pointed out that these are good kind of summary um, symbols or representatives of the law and the prophets. Um, of course, you know, Moses is the one who received the law from God and then was that covenant mediator as he was um, communicating that to the people. And Elijah is just the, the most, you know, one of the most memorable and courageous of the prophets. He's just like tenacious and brave at times, um, examples of the prophetic office, and so here we see the the law and the prophets with Jesus, and, and I love it. Like they're not they're not bickering, they're not in opposition to one another, but it seems like they're in agreement, almost as if that the Bible is one united story that points to Jesus, like other video said. You have to trust me because it was in the video. <laughs> and so we see that culmination of the law and the prophets in full agreement and fellowship with Jesus. It says there that they, they talked with Jesus. And then it goes on afterwards. But so they talked with Jesus. That's all that Mark says. Um, Mark is um, scant with words. Uh, if he was on social media, he would love Twitter because just you just say something short. Um, he, he rarely like, expands as much as I wish that he would because I'm like, tell me more. Um, and, and so in half of a verse, he just says that the three of them were talking. So it leaves me, I, I want to I speculate about the content of his conversation that he had with Elijah and with Moses. So if you're taking notes, please stop. So you should, you know, this is this is Mike Neglia's speculations. Okay? Um you know, I wonder, like, did Jesus like turn to Elijah and and say something like, you know, Elijah, you know that the testimony of Jesus, you know, is the spirit of prophecy. And and you know what? Like I really commend you, Elijah, because you know you came to a dark world at a dark time in Israel's history, and and you brought God's word to people that needed it, and that were going to reject you because you brought God's word. You know, well done, well done, good and faithful servant. Um, you brought God's word, a- and you know, Elijah, you know. I also have come to a crooked and to a perverse generation. And, and I'm not just bringing God's word, but I am the word of God made flesh, you know, to dwell among them. That, wouldn't that be a cool conversation? As, they, as they, what, would, what would Elijah say back to that? How would the, how the conversation go back and forth about that? And then when he turned to Moses and, and be like, you know, Moses, you led the people you led the people out of slavery, out of a sure death, and you brought them from slavery into a new kingdom, into a whole new way of, of living. And you gave them the law. And, and you know, Moses, I didn't come to destroy the law, but I came to complete it. You know, what, what would Moses say? What, what, what would the conversation be uh, back and forth as, as Jesus speaks to these people? What questions would they ask him? But you know, we have more information, so we don't have to only speculate. So you're allowed to take notes now, because if we jump to Luke, Luke tells us a little bit more. Um, in Luke 9:31, we have a little bit. It says that they um, they spoke of his departure, which he was about to accomplish in Jerusalem. So that's That's some of the content of the conversation. So obviously, um, the the cross and the events of Good Friday, they're on Jesus' mind. He spoke about them in chapter 8. He's speaking about them here. He's talking about the purpose for which he came. Isn't it interesting, though, the way he talks about it? He doesn't say, Oh, guys. I'm going to get killed in a few days. <laughs> he doesn't say, uh, you know, the, the Romans are going to impale me on this cruel torture device. Um, he doesn't speak about it in, in those manners. He calls, what he's going to do in Jerusalem, he calls it his departure. And if you're reading in an ESV or an NIV, um, there's a, a footnote for the word departure, which I think is really helpful. And it, If you follow that footnote to the bottom of the page, uh, you'll see that the the underlying word, the, the, the Greek word there for departure. In fact, does anybody, does anybody have it? Does anyone happen to be on Luke 9.31 in Luke, in an NIV or an ESV? Okay, I've asked and I have to wait awkwardly. Pardon me? Yeah. What's your name? Kristen, great job. Luke 9.31 says that what is going to take place in Jerusalem It's actually, Jesus refers to it as his exodus. Pretty cool. I think Moses knows a thing or two about exoduses, right? (laughs) And so wouldn't that be an interesting conversation as Jesus and Moses speak about each of their exoduses? But so if we think of exodus, though, merely as the title of the second book of the Bible if we think of Exodus maybe as um, just a departure, I think we need to have a, a broad enough understanding of what an Exodus is that can say that Moses led one, but Jesus led one too. Maybe I, I propose this definition of what, what we as Christians should think about when we think of Exodus. The blood of the Lamb applied to the people of God, which saves them from judgment, punishment, wrath, bondage and death, and then leads them into a new kingdom. Doesn't that work, both for Moses and for Jesus? This is the essence of Exodus. And Jesus says, I'm going to go achieve my Exodus in Jerusalem. What a wonderful conversation, and I would have loved to to listen to it, but there's someone who did listen to it. There was someone who was present for that conversation, uh, the apostle Peter. Uh, Peter was there listening. And Peter is just like, this is such a great conversation. I want to contribute. (laughs) And so in verses five and six, there's an interruption from Peter. Peter jumps in and he he says this, verse five. Peter says, "Um, Rabbi, it's good that we're here. Let's make three tents: one for you, one for Moses and one for Elijah. He's just like,. Ah. Um, F, F. Scott Fitzgerald says that the world is divided up into two different people. Um, there's people who have something to say, and there's people who have to say something. And Peter, in this instance, is someone who has to say something. Later on, I'm thinking of Acts chapter two, etc. man, he is someone who has something to say. But at this point, he just has to say something. He just, it, it, doesn't it say it right there in, um, oh, where is it? Wherever, somewhere. It says that he didn't know what to say, but he's like, I gotta say something. So he just blurts this out. So he says, let's just set up tabernacles and live in glory here. Now remember, they're talking about Jesus going to the cross. And Peter says, uh, nope. Let's stay up here instead. Let's stay here in glory. Don't go down there for the exodus. You stay up here. This often is interpreted as, hey, let's just appreciate the glory that's around us. Yeah, absolutely. But also, I think Peter is saying the same thing that he said last chapter. I rebuke you. Don't go to the cross. Stay up here where it's safe. Don't go down to the exodus. He believes at this point in a bloodless, crossless religion full of glory. So he says, avoid the cross, Jesus. And last time, in chapter 8, verse 32, he tells Jesus to avoid the cross, and Jesus rebukes him. Sharply. The most famous rebuke in all the Bible, isn't it? Get behind me, Satan. But here, we see that not God the Son, but God the Father rebukes Peter for interrupting. So the last thought is the interruption from God. So verse seven says, and a cloud overshadowed them and a voice came out of the cloud and said, this is my beloved son, listen to him. And suddenly looking around, they no longer saw anyone with them, but Jesus only. This is my beloved son, listen to him. You know, as Peter says, let's stay up here and build the tabernacles. He, he says, let's stay up here and build three tabernacles or three tents. Um, perhaps he's thinking of, you know, wow, I, I'm seeing the heroes of the faith that I've grown up hearing stories about. Elijah, Moses, wow, and they're here with Jesus. And he says, let's build three tabernacles, which maybe he is saying, Jesus, you're, you're greater than I thought. You're like, you're like equal with Moses. You're equal with Elijah, He's being very fair and egalitarian. Each of you deserve your own shrine, he says. Thinking, man, Jesus is better than I thought. He's about as good as Moses. Wow. But isn't it good news that when when God the Father interrupts, he is saying, you know what? He's, He's not the same. This is my beloved son. So listen to him. The author of Hebrews in chapter 3 says that Moses was faithful in all of God's house as a servant, but Christ is faithful as a son. Jesus is counted worthy of more glory than Moses, so much so that the builder of a house has more glory than the house itself. So the father is saying, this is my beloved son. Pay more attention to him than to anyone else. Listen to him stop talking, and listen to him. You know, that's, that's the prayer that I have for um, the country of Ireland, again, where I've lived for, for 13 years. And it's a, it's a country with a lot of religious history. And then also I'm aware of just you know, the history of um, Italy as well, where they're, you know, they're big into religion, and they're big into holy people, and Jesus is about equal with them. And, you know, my prayer has been that, that Christ would be seen as the unique and deserving of all the honor and all the praise amongst all the saints and relics and, and religious trappings uh, that are in the country that I love and have been ministering in for 13 years. And, and so my prayer has been, you know, in Ireland, you know, may Jesus Christ be seen as the beloved son of God and may he be listened to and exalted. And, and so I, I would hope I'd love to enlist you guys to pray with me for that. Uh, but I also do want to challenge you as well. I don't want to say, people over there, they have problems. They don't, you know, listen to Jesus enough. I mean, I'm also a preacher, so I preach. You guys probably don't either. Um, there could be different different things, different good things or people or resolutions or whatever that are perhaps going to be exalted to equal to the status of Jesus. May I just remind you, as we begin this year, Jesus is God's beloved son. Listen to him. There should be a primacy and a supremacy of who Christ is. And so there we have it. And I love that last verse. You know, suddenly they look around. They, they didn't see anyone with them but Jesus only. I mean, maybe to borrow a tagline from Reliance Church, you know, simply Jesus. That was that, wow, it's, you know, it's, just, it's, all about, it's all about him. It's all about Jesus. And as I, as I close, just a, a very final thought. Um, Moses is, is there. And I think that's, that's wonderful. Think about that. Moses is there. If you're familiar with the Old Testament or if you do the Bible reading plan, you're, you're going to kind of get acquainted with Moses. Um, you're going to see that Moses, his, his, his like mission in life was to get the people of Israel into the promised land. But in this just tragedy, due to his sin in Numbers chapter 21, he misrepresented God and as a consequence of his sin, he was barred from entrance into the promised land. You remember that? And then Deuteronomy ends with Moses going up on a a mountain and he's able to look into the promised land. That's all that he wanted. That's where he was working for, for four decades to get there. He was able to look, but because of his sin, he died on the mountain and he wasn't permitted access to the land of Israel. But guys, Moses is there. Whether it's Mount Tabor or Mount Hermon, he's there. His feet are on the the land of Israel that he wanted to go to so much, the promised land. Maybe it just reminds us of a a spiritual principle, you know, that, that sin has consequences. Sin has consequences. Sin will keep us from things. Sin will keep us from the promised presence of God. But, guys, I said this is important. Moses is there. Moses is there because of the exodus of Jesus. He's only there because of Jesus. The giver of the law himself, Moses, was unable to keep it. But Jesus came. And Jesus, he went to another mountain. And he wasn't between two holy men, but he was suspended between two thieves. And there, the weight of the law crushed Jesus. The sin of Moses, the sin of Mike, the sin of you was placed upon Jesus. And in his exodus, the Lamb of God shed his blood for the forgiveness of sins. So that failed leaders like Moses, like messed up, frightened, nervous people with ups and downs like Elijah, can't have access to the presence and the promise of God. So may we begin 2017 as we aim to complete with a vision of Jesus as who he really truly is.